Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Ryan Hurley is general counsel at Copper State Farms, the largest medical cannabis grower in the Southwest. Prior to joining Copper State, Ryan was a partner at Rose Law Group in Scottsdale, Arizona where he led the firm's marijuana practice group. He has a background in land use and zoning law, environmental and water issues, renewable energy, and a wide variety of regulatory compliance and administrative law issues. Ryan, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. This is a very exciting time when it comes to cannabis law, both here in the U.S. and internationally. There are legalization initiatives underway in states across the nation and in many, many countries, most notably for us, Mexico. And Arizona is in the thick of things. This is in large part due to the approval last November of Proposition 207, which legalized recreational cannabis in the state. So let's kick things off by asking you to give us an overview of what is happening in Arizona with regard to cannabis. What should we be looking out for at this stage? Sure. So, uh, you know, we've had medical marijuana in Arizona for a little over 10 years now, dispensaries for about eight of those years. And just recently, back in November, the Arizona voters voted for Proposition 207 to allow adult use or recreational cannabis here in Arizona. And we have gone pretty quickly to a uh, adult use regulated licensed selling environment. The Department of Health Services was uh, excellent at processing the applications and generating the first batch of rules. And so in uh, mid-February, a good number of the existing medical marijuana licenses were uh, approved to switch over to adult use. And we were all real excited about that. And we're cranking away. We're doing great business. Our, our business at our stores has tripled pretty much instantaneously. Uh, and that's, you know, still in a COVID world. So lots of exciting things going on in Arizona and lots of growth to be had. Ryan, we try to find out as much as we can about our guests before we record the podcast. And thanks to that research, we, we learned that you played a prominent role in that earlier effort to legalize medical cannabis in, in Arizona. I think that makes you someone who is well-placed to reflect on just how much has changed in the last decade or so when it comes to cannabis. If you don't mind, could you take us back in time to 2010 and tell us about the challenges that 
legalization initiatives were, were facing back then and how it looks now from your perspective. What are your overall thoughts on the world of change that has taken place? Man, it's like an entirely different universe uh, in just a, a short amount of time. Going back 10 years ago, our medical marijuana law passed uh, by a very narrow margin. It was three or 4,000 votes, and uh, it, ha- it was uh, vehemently opposed by our governor and everybody at the legislature. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, it was actually the third time that Arizona had passed some version of a medical marijuana law. But uh, every time prior, the uh, the legislature had uh, or the governor had stymied the program, and uh, that the, one of those original attempts did directly led to a, a change in the Arizona Constitution called the Voter Protection Act that said if if the voters pass something by initiative, the legislature can't just come in and undo it. And so, uh, thanks to that Voter Protection Act, uh, this this law that was you know extremely opposed and passed very narrowly, uh, we were able to implement it. But it wasn't without fights. I mean, our governor sued us in federal court, uh, and we had to uh, sue the Department of Health Services to move forward. Uh, it was really a, a battle, uh, and it was about two years between when the law passed to when the first dispensary opened. Um, you know, back then I was the only only attorney in the state, uh, really, uh, certainly the only attorney at a firm that was that was willing to touch it. Uh, and, you know, now I'm now I get to be on podcasts uh, from other firms. So that's that's a, definitely a, a big difference, uh, you know, and also just the the, the level of acceptance. Uh, anecdotally, my parents were very concerned with the direction my career was taking and and now my mom is a medical marijuana patient that uh, she uses a one-to-one CBD THC tincture and it helps her sleep without pain. And man, she's my, my biggest apostle now and, and proselytizer for medical marijuana. So I think that the notion that um, marijuana is, is too dangerous, the reefer madness stuff is finally, finally dying out. I mean, it's uh, it still has some some strongholds throughout the country, but that that's the biggest difference. And, and now, and, and along with that, we're seeing the large amounts of money coming into the space. I mean, when, when we first uh, started getting going, my clients, they were, they were putting their own money in their, their parents' money, their friends' money. There was no, you know, large scale capital in the space. It was very difficult to get things going. It was a, it was a little bit of a wild west. You just kind of, kind of made it up as you went along and tried your best. And here we are 10 years later and, and we've got multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies and podcasts with awesome law firms. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. When we look at some of the things that are happening elsewhere in the world, it's sometimes a bit frustrating to see that some of those debates that we have already had here in the United States, or as you pointed out, we have almost completely left behind, are still very much alive in other countries. And on the one hand, of course, it's it's understandable, right, that there's going to be different speeds at which countries move. But at the same time, I uh, sometimes cannot help but feel a level of frustration. And, and, and you almost want to scream and say, look, we've been through this already. You know, once you adopt this proposed legislation or, 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 or take whatever steps are being discussed, 10 years from now, you're going to look back and you're going to say, well, it's fine. We were we were worrying too much about about things that we didn't have to worry about, and we now have all these economic opportunities that have been created, right? So there's a little bit of that sense of do we really have to replay history? 
Yeah, it, it still boggles my mind how uh, some people are holding on to this reefer madness uh, stuff. You know, uh, people in like the, the governor of South Dakota trying to prevent the implementation of both medical marijuana and recreational, which was passed by their voters in the same election. She's trying to stop this program from moving forward, saying it's too dangerous. And then this morning on NPR, I hear the story about liver disease spiking 30 to 50 percent in women uh, because of uh, increased alcohol consumption. And, and yet we have, you know, we celebrate uh, alcohol consumption every single day in this country. We don't we don't just tolerate it. We celebrate it. And so, you know, that that cognitive dissonance still I, I it's still hard for me to understand, but but thankfully uh, that those folks are dying out and, and they're being proven wrong. And whether they admit it or not, they're a dying breed. So let's turn now to to your own career. As we mentioned in the introduction, you are general counsel at Copper State Farms, the largest uh, medical cannabis grower in the Southwest. Please tell us more about Copper State. Yeah, so Copper State is a vertically integrated uh, cannabis company here in Arizona. Uh, we manage uh, four vertically integrated licenses, um, and so we have four retail stores in the greater Phoenix area. Uh, those operate under the Soul Flower brand name. And then we have a large-scale production and manufacturing facility uh, about three hours from Phoenix in a town called Snowflake, Arizona. We converted an existing tomato and cucumber greenhouse uh, that had been in bankruptcy. We purchased it out of bankruptcy and converted it to grow cannabis. And now we're one of the largest growers in the country, uh, certainly I think the largest in the Southwest. We employ about 400 people in the small town of Snowflake, Arizona. We're a, a great partner and they're a great partner to us. And we produce products up there with our edible brand, Good Things Coming. We have a, a line of cartridges under the Copper State brand name. We're getting ready to launch a concentrate brand uh, called Array. So uh, we do a little bit of everything, uh, wholesale, retail, uh, cultivation, uh, manufacturing, and um, we're, we're really focused here on the Arizona market. It's interesting you mentioned tomatoes and, and cucumbers. Uh, as it turns out, we're doing some work at the moment uh, not not related to cannabis, obviously, but we're working on trade matters that have some relevance to to those industries and others, uh, tomato, cucumbers, and other other products. And you hear a lot of complaints from these from these industries about the unfair competition that they face from other countries. And going to this idea of cognitive dissonance that you you, you brought up, right? It makes you it makes you wonder. Well. Some of the states where there are strong agricultural industries, you know, there, there's a mixed record, right? Some of them are open to cannabis, some are not. But it does make you wonder, right, if faced with these factors, faced with these kinds of challenges, you wonder why wouldn't they open the door in some of these states to cannabis, knowing that it is an industry that is growing, that is creating new opportunities, that could not only replace some of these more traditional agricultural products, but could in fact bring far more promising opportunities to the people of these states. Yeah, for sure. And particularly in these small towns. I mean, we, we, we're a perfect example of it. Snowflake, Arizona is a relatively small town in rural Arizona. It had relied on the tomato and cucumber facility and then a paper mill and a couple other uh, manufacturing things, and uh, they all went under. And so this town lost, I think, you know, a couple thousand jobs in the span of a decade or less. Other than Walmart, we're now the biggest employer up there, and we start everybody at $15 an hour with full benefits. And, you know, it's really uh, revitalized some of the economic structure of the town. 
you're absolutely right to to deny the rural America and the agricultural industry of, of this opportunity is, is damn near criminal of itself. That's actually a great way of putting it. And just the other day, I was reading about what's happening in, in Morocco, where they're beginning to consider legalization of medical cannabis. And as it turns out, the party in government in, in Morocco, which, which is actually an Islamist party there, they're a religious party, but their leadership has has nonetheless supported medical cannabis legalization. And when you think about it, it's actually not that odd, right? I mean, you're you're creating opportunities for for farmers. You're providing sufferers of, of certain conditions with access to products that can help alleviate their pain. It's actually, at least at first glance, right? It, it, it seems that if you're looking at it from a moral issue, it makes you wonder what what, what is, relatively speaking, the the more moral choice, right? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You know, when I when I first kind of got into this, I knew it was risky. And, you know, there were people at the at the State Bar Association suggesting I should be disbarred. But, you know, part of the reason that I was so passionate about it is because I, I met people and I looked them in the eyes and they told me that if they didn't have access to cannabis, they would kill themselves uh, because they were suffering from MS or Parkinson's or some other ailment from which they got relief with medical cannabis. And, you know, that to me was a human rights issue. And so that was part of the reason I got involved. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Depriving them of that is immoral. So turning away from cannabis a, a little bit, I suspect, because I think ultimately we'll be circling back to it after this, this question. But I noticed in your LinkedIn profile that in addition to your cannabis work, you, you also, uh, and the direct quote is, solar water and environmental issues are always at the top of my mind as well. And when we introduced you at the beginning of the podcast, we also talked about some of these other areas of the law on which you you focus. But I'd like to hear more about that. And sure enough, what, what are the linkages, if any, between your work on those issues, your interest on those issues and then cannabis? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I was an environmental science uh, major and undergraduate uh, at University of Arizona, Bachelor of Science uh, from the School of Agriculture there. I started my career uh, doing about 50% land use and zoning work and then 50% water law. And, you know, in Arizona, water law, water rights, water availability, it's, it's our life. You know, it's a, we, we live in a very dry state. We get a very little amount of rain. We have very few natural uh, waterways. And the vast majority of our water comes from the Colorado River, which gets pumped uphill uh, and has a, you know, complex regulatory structure associated with it. Uh, so I did uh, a fair amount of that work. And then after the real estate crash, uh, I was able to pivot a little bit to the solar energy space. And uh, I helped clients like Solar City establish the, the regulatory authority to operate in Arizona and to, and to put rooftop solar panels and uh, also worked with utility scale solar companies. And I did that up until the medical marijuana law passed. And a combination of, of factors gave me that opportunity, and I, I decided to head more in that direction. But, uh, you know, they all do kind of relate. We've got the sun, the water, and, and now the plants. Uh, and so I'm always looking for ways to make Copper State more sustainable, but just growing in a greenhouse in Arizona as opposed to growing indoors with the massive air, air conditioning bill down in Phoenix uh, is, is sustainable from the get-go or much more sustainable from the get-go. So I get to use, uh, some of the, some of what I learned in the, in the previous worlds, uh, in cannabis for sure. And 
I think going forward, you know, even more so, I'll be able to, to leverage that stuff and try to get some folks converted over to renewable energy and recycling water and minimizing our impact on the environment. That's fascinating. I want to ask you before we sort of move away from cannabis more more definitely, what are your thoughts, if any, on what's happening down in, in Mexico? And of course, I think initially, even after there's hopefully full legalization there, it'll be a while before the, the cross-border synergies can be fully exploited, right? Given our own import and export laws. But but looking ahead, you know, maybe maybe looking at, let's say, a five-year window when perhaps some of some of our own laws here will will start becoming more more reasonable and better reflecting certain realities. Do you see potential for for cooperation between cannabis businesses in Arizona and Mexico? Do you see it perhaps as a possible threat to the Arizona industry? I mean, we know that some people go down to Mexico to go to the dentist and they go there to, uh, you know, receive medical care and buy certain things. Could we perhaps see a little bit of that happening with cannabis? Yeah, I, I, I think it's possible. I mean, it's it's funny. Uh, one of the founders of our company made his first business success growing tomatoes in Mexico after NAFTA. And before that, most tomatoes were grown in greenhouses here in the United States. After the laws enabled it, uh, he realized he could squeeze the margins a little bit more in Mexico. And when you're growing identical tomatoes, uh, you know, a half a cent on a, on a package of tomatoes really makes a big difference. And so he was able to make that a success. And, uh, you know, it put a lot of uh, greenhouses out of business here in this country. But now we're putting cannabis in them. So, but I do think that is a, a long term, something we've got to keep our eye on. They have uh, a- excellent agriculture in Mexico. They've got great land, great sun. And uh, if they're able to import, uh, yeah, it'll be a challenge for our business specifically. And I think it'll be a great opportunity for Mexico. It's absolutely something we should keep our eye on. I mean, we saw a lot of uh, businesses in Canada start to export to, to various countries that were interested in medical cannabis programs, but didn't want to go so far as to allow people to grow their own or to, or to allow uh, growth within their country. So I think Mexico moving forward is what the fourth country in the world that will fully legalize a cannabis industry is absolutely fantastic for them. Absolutely. I feel like Mexico has a great opportunity here potentially to export to other countries. We've seen that happen in Canada where uh, Canadian companies were able to ship cannabis to other countries on a medical program. And uh, I think if, uh, if the U.S. doesn't follow suit soon, then we're going to lose out. So hopefully being between Canada and Mexico, two fully legalized countries in the globe, that the U.S. will, will learn its lesson and, and move forward. So turning back to Arizona, our firm, Harris Bracken, recently opened a, a Phoenix office. And this is uh, due in no small part to Proposition 207 and the changing landscape in the state when it, when it comes to, to cannabis. Our, our cannabis practices is really one of our, our most, most active and, and most essential. At the same time, it, it would not be accurate to say that was all that drew the firm to, to Arizona. So could you perhaps help explain to, to our listeners what other opportunities uh, exist in Arizona beyond cannabis? We're just talking a few minutes ago about Mexico and putting aside the potential for cross-border cannabis trade. Clearly, there is a lot happening already between the two nations. So we'd love to hear your thoughts about the economic climate down in uh, the Grand Canyon State. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think Arizona is really well positioned to, to compete in the economy in the next uh, couple of decades. Uh, you know, we've got relatively low cost of living. We've got lots of sunshine, a great climate. People love to come here to, to play. And, and uh, now people are, are more and more coming here to live. Uh, it's a reasonably easy place to live. Like I said, it's not uh, super expensive. It's easy to get around. You do kind of have to have a car unless you want to move uh, in, in downtown Phoenix uh, and stay in that area. But it's a, it's a pretty easy, good place to live. We have, you know, beautiful, beautiful uh, natural features within a short drive of the Phoenix area. And being on the border of Mexico uh, has a lot of advantages, uh, not the least of which is there's a beautiful beach about four hours south of Phoenix called the Puerto Penasco or Rocky Point that is just one of the best places on earth as far as I'm concerned. It's uh, it's absolutely amazing. So uh, I think Arizona is well, well positioned. We have a reasonably low tax burden, reasonably low regulation and sometimes a functional government, <laughs> though uh, our current legislature is a, a bit of a problem. But uh, I think that uh, a lot of businesses are looking at Arizona. A lot of businesses are choosing to come here. And I think that the only thing where, well, one of the biggest things we could improve that would make us even more competitive was, would be to uh, focus on our public education system a little bit more. Uh, and uh, that's frequently cited as one of the reasons people over pass over Arizona. But we just passed an initiative not that long ago to, to provide some more dollars to the schools. So uh, hopefully that'll address that concern. I think uh, Arizona is primed to be a competitor in the, in the next, uh, next decade or two. Following up on that, I think over the past, I guess the past year, you could say, but more recently, I would say, in the last few months, there there has been all this talk about people leaving California, people moving to Texas, people moving to Florida, Arizona again sort of falls into that equation as well. Uh, even you know we had a, a guest on recently from from Eastern Washington talking about how people are moving to Eastern Washington from Western Washington and other other places along the West Coast. But let me ask you. How do people in in Arizona see this? Uh, because uh, you, you do hear a little bit. I mean, certainly in places like Texas, there are some voices sort of expressing their view of, of things. Right? We there's a lot of focus naturally on on the people that are moving, but there, there's also that other side of it, the people that are essentially receiving this this inflow. How are how are people in in a place like Arizona that is essentially a net recipient of new inhabitants. How, how are people there looking in general at this? I mean, is it something that people look at as, a, as an opportunity, as a, as a way to, to really take the state to the next level in terms of growing and becoming a more important, more, more nationally relevant state? Or do you sense that there is some concern about how these new arrivals might might change the character of the state in a way that the people who are already there might not appreciate. Hmm. Well, uh, that's kind of a loaded question, I suppose. But uh, you know, Arizona in general, I think, is pretty welcoming and pretty friendly. It's a it's always been a, a sort of immigration or transient type state. You know, most people 
that moved here did so in the 70s and the 80s. And before that, it was a it's a pretty small town. And you don't run into too many people that are actually from here and certainly uh, far fewer whose parents are, are still are from here. So, um, you know, by, by that nature, we're always pretty welcoming for from uh, for new folks. But uh, we are starting to see the impacts on our on our air quality, our traffic, our uh, housing costs particular, the housing costs, I think, are a concern for a lot of people. We grew out to not up here in Phoenix, uh, for better or for worse. And if you want to live in the central, you know, Phoenix area and not have to take a freeway to work, buying a house is, is really, really expensive. And so I think that we've got some challenges there with affordable housing. Uh, I think some of the uh, folks that are sort of diehard right-wing Republicans are a little concerned at how the, the state is changing geopolitically. Uh, you know, we're, we've got two Democratic senators uh, for the first time in my life that I can remember, uh, and we're pretty evenly split on Congress. And, you know, the, the cities, uh, Flagstaff, Phoenix, and Tucson are all uh, more Democratic uh, hotbeds than they are Republicans. So I think there is some, uh, some fear about that. But uh, frankly, I believe it's moving the, the state in the right direction. And, and we're really a microcosm of, of what the country really looks like in general. Uh, we're kind of split down the middle. So uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing. Net immigration to Arizona has always been uh, Arizona's number one economic driver has been growth, and it and it still is. So I think we uh, we just need to find a way to manage that on the housing and the traffic and the air quality front. Well, thank you for fielding that question. And before we let you go, I'd love to hear if you have any recommendations for us, uh, anything you you've read or or seen or listened to recently that you'd like to to pass along. Yeah, I like to watch uh, some of the animated uh, cartoon series on TV just uh, for fun. And I, I went back and started watching King of the Hill again, and it, it really still stands up. And I think gives us an interesting insight as to where the country was uh, 15, 10, 15 years ago compared to where it is now. So if you're inclined to do such things, uh, go check that out. Uh, Holographic Universe is a great book if you ever want to get a little metaphysical sometime. That book really opened my eyes a lot, uh, made me think. So there's there's a couple of different bookend uh, recommendations on the, on the spectrum there. Fantastic. Thank you for that. My recommendation this week is an article that is titled The Fall of Hong Kong, China's Strategic Plan to Conquer Hong Kong and Purge It of Its People. And this, um, at least where I read it, was on the website of the Middle East Media Research Institute, or MEMORY. And it was um, written by a Chinese journalist who explains how what we are seeing now in Hong Kong, far from being a response to the, to the recent protests in the city, is actually part of a, of a longer-term plan uh, on the part of China to assimilate the city. So I think this is a facet of what's happening in Hong Kong that doesn't get as much coverage in, in the media. And in fact, I think that for people who haven't lived in Hong Kong and haven't seen the ways in which these efforts manifest themselves, it might be it might, might not be easy to, to pick up on the fact that it's happening, but this is a great introduction to that phenomenon. So again, the Fall of Hong Kong, China's Strategic Plan to Conquer Hong Kong and Purge It of Its People. And as always, we will be providing a link on the blog posts when we publish the podcast. And with that, uh, Ryan, I'd like to thank you once again for, for coming on the show. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation. 
Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it as well. And uh, anytime. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.